these two guys for a while. And they're planning on being here both together. Aaron committed this week. I had a long discussion with him. After talking over a two-month span, he is completely bought into what we're doing. I didn't pressure him. I said, look, we're going to talk one time. I'm going to send you out for a few months. And if you call me back, we'll have a real discussion. But I want you to pray. I want you to seek counsel. And I want you to think about what it will cost for you financially, emotionally, and with your family to move from Texas here to this side of the country. Two months later, I got a text message. Exactly two months later, I got a text message on Monday. He said, hey, I really need to talk to you. And we talked, I believe, on Tuesday, and we had almost a two-hour conversation just laying out to him the importance of what's next. And it was a really exciting time uh, for me because these are young guys who are watching the ministry of City Light in Seattle, in Malaysia, our partnering churches, as well as what we're doing here at the very beginning stage. And they're willing to move halfway across the country to serve the Lord here with us. I think that's a big deal. Uh, we've got Santi, who's coming down from Pennsylvania. Um, he had a, a, about an hour conversation with Tyler and I. Uh, that was exciting. I think that was Friday. And uh, there was a job opportunity. We've been specifically praying for Santi and his family through, month, through the month of March or April to be here. And the guy talked to him on the phone. He's been going back and forth in emails with him. And it looks like he wants him to start work the first week of March. So what he'll probably do is be down here for a week or two without his family, get established, put a down payment on a place to rent, and then he'll go back up, get his family, and they'll be here with us. Uh, Christian and Abigail, obviously just having gotten married, uh, are back from their honeymoon, I think today or yesterday, something like that. And uh, they're really excited. They're visiting Matt Chandler's church today. So... Um, he sent us pictures to rub it in our faces, but they were uh, visiting around and they're excited, very excited. When they get here, you're probably going to have to show some excitement because they're going to bust the doors open when they get here. They are pumped about being here and they are a great couple looking forward to what God does there. Uh, I'm going to test the slides, so don't start yet. Um, just want to make sure these work like my computer because this is not my computer and I'm uncomfortable. So, all right. Yeah, I'm ready when you are. Nehemiah chapter 4. Everybody else. All right, turn to Nehemiah chapter number 4. These passages, as we go through them together as leaders on Wednesday, become more complex each week. Chapter 1 wasn't so bad. Chapter 2 was like, eh, it's getting a little hard. And then chapter 3 was really difficult. That was probably the longest meeting we had. Chapter 4 has a lot of practical application, but the interpretation is extremely difficult. And once you label the interpretation as I understand it, then you realize your application to, that preceded all that was wrong anyway, so you got to start over. It's a very difficult text, but I, I've grown to appreciate the timing that God brought our group to this passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read verse 1 and 2. We're going to jump down to verse number five, uh, 4, 5, and 6, and then we'll go through the passage together. If you're following along, it's Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry. He mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the city for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a single day? 
Can they revive the stones from the heaps of the rubble, even the burned ones? Drop down to verse 4. Hear, O our God, this is Nehemiah, how we are an object of contempt. Return their taunting on their heads and turn them into plunder into a land of captivity. Do not forgive their guilt and do not let their sin be wiped out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall. The entire wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind or a heart to work. When we're looking at a text of scripture like this, it's a significant note that there's no fighting going on at this point as far as weaponry. At this point, it's words. And so what I've done is I've titled the message Verbal Warfare because that's literally what's happening in this text. And before every physical battle that ever takes place, there's always this that precedes it. And what we're going to find in this text is that words have power and words carry weight. In fact, that's why I have the words as weapons. Sometimes the greatest weapon the enemy uses against us is not a physical weapon, but words. And sometimes he can even use words in your own head and turn your own mindset against yourself. And that is what Sanballat does here in the text of Scripture. Now, we learned about Sanballat previously in chapter number two. He was already a problem for them. He had already had opposition to them rebuilding. He even mocked them a little bit in chapter two and said, these guys are rebelling against the king's ordinances, when actually they were there on commission of the king, and they were given letters to build, and they were given permission to use the Lebanon forest for wood. But here yet again, I do not believe Sanballat truly believed the Jews were going to be able to do this work. Think about chapter 3, where Mark had taught us last week. In the very first verse, you do not have masons building the wall, you have priests. Later you find perfumers, bakers, smiths. You do not find people that were actually qualified to do this work, but yet they were doing it. They did not have the great wealth like the days of Solomon, where Solomon came into the equation. He had nations around him bringing in gold and silver, saying, here, we're dedicating this to you. Or David, who preceded them, who set up the stage for the whole city of Jerusalem to be built and its temple. No, that's not the equation here. You have broken walls, and they don't have enough finances to build whole new walls. Rather, they had to repair what was already broken. And you're going to see Sanballat use that against them. You see unqualified people doing a work. No doubt externally, Sanballat would have made fun of this, thinking they'll never get this done. Well, guess what? Chapter 4 starts, and it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. So he's like, wow, these guys are actually serious. They're actually doing it. I never thought they would do it. But it didn't make him laugh this time. This was no longer a laughable matter. Rather, he goes into great anger and fury and mockery. That is his next move. Now, what we see about anger is quite unique in this passage. This is a moment of application. You see, you can be angry with somebody all day long. You're not hurting them. You're only hurting yourself. And what we see is you can't hurt someone by feeling angry, but... 
you can drive that anger to action, which often begins with destructive threats. Now, maybe you have heard somebody say this, or maybe you've caught yourself saying this before. How many of you have said the phrase or heard the phrase, I would rather somebody have punched me than to say what they just said to me? Those words hurt more than physical pain. Sometimes words penetrate deeper than somebody's fist. Now, Sanballat knew that if he were to attack the Jews right now, keep in mind back in chapter 2, Nehemiah showed up with the captain of the guard. He has escorts from Persia with him. He also has letters of the king. So if Sanballat were to go and attack Jerusalem right now, he's literally starting a war with Persia, and he would lose badly. It's a bad idea. So he knows physical attack is not on the table at the moment. But what can you do instead of physically attacking somebody in order to still get your point across? Well, you can threaten them. You can mock them. You can attack them with your words. And that is exactly what Sanballat does here. He feels angry. He is furious. He is steaming. And so his next move is not to go in and attack, but rather to vent about it and to share his threats with his companions. Look down at verse number 2. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers. Now, the idea of this here is chief counselors. These are people that would have agreed with him. Now, let's pause right there and think about that as well. How many of you, when you are mad or you are feeling a certain way, the first people you're going to probably go to are people who agree with you, right? The first, when, when you want justification for your feelings and you want your feelings to be validated, you don't go to people who are going to tell you they're not validated. You're feeling wrong about this and it's a wrong reason to feel this way. You don't want that answer. No, no, no. You want to go to somebody who's going to say, you know what, you're right, you should feel that way. Well, of course he's going to bring his counselors in, and he goes to what I call his echo chamber, and he speaks to them, and he vents to them, as if like he's going to get anything accomplished outside of a bunch of people that rile him up and ignite his fury. Notice in verse 2, he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria. Now, note this if you're using the New American Standard. Down at the bottom, there's a footnote. <clears throat> and down at that footnote, you'll see the word army. You'll see army or army. In fact, I believe that is the better translation there. Although these would have been wealthy men, the idea is he was talking to the leaders of the armies in Samaria. He brought together chief counselors and military personnel just to vent to them. Because being angry and just keeping that anger to yourself really doesn't justify anything. But man, if you can get people to agree with you, now you have teams. And when you have teams, now you're a bigger threat. Because if you're mad and they're mad with you, now it looks like you've got a gang that can accomplish something. You haven't pulled out a sword yet to fight, but yet at the same time, you have people and alliances on your side. And that's what he's doing. He's pep rallying these guys like Geshem. He's pep rallying the Arabs. He's pep rallying the Ammonites with Tobiah. And he's getting them to agree with him on just about anything he wanted them to because he's eliminating from his heart his fury and his anger and he's getting people to justify it. Now, he asked five questions here, and that's what we're going to spend our time on. There's parallels here between Sanballat's five questions and Nehemiah's five requests to God. 
You're going to see the parallels in a second. So let's look at the five questions of Sanballat in verse 2. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Now the word feeble means without strength or weak. Specifically, the weakness of the Jews was that they were limited in numbers and wealth. Now, one of the things that Sanballat does here is he goes on and gives them an idea that they already know themselves. Do you not believe that the Jews, when they showed up, already knew they were low on supplies? That they already had the wrong personnel to build a wall? Listen, go through chapter 3 again and think about Mark's sermon last week. When you're looking to build an entire city's wall, you don't bring women, priests, smiths, bakers, and other perfumers and all these other types of people to come do masonry work. You don't, you don't do that. No more would you want me putting cabinets in your kitchen. That would be the worst idea to say, Stephen, can you come over on the weekend and help me hang some cabinets? Something will be hung, but it might not be the cabinets. You might hang me by the time it's over. Because I am not good at that thing. I'm just not good at that. Priests were killing animals and offering them on altars all day. They weren't building material or people that you would use for building materials. That wasn't how this went. They were already insecure about the fact that they were unqualified for this task. And if your enemy can attack your insecurity and bring it out to the surface, now you have to wrestle with something while they just sit back and relax and watch you turmoil and destroy yourself. He can't pull a sword on them at this point. It's an act of war. But he can get in their head. And so what he does is he says, what are these weak, insignificant, unqualified people doing? Remember, these aren't said in niceness. He's fuming. Put yourself in the room. He's in front of his chief counselors who are just going to say, yeah, you get him, Sanballat. And over here, he's got his army personnel. They're like, hey, you just tell us when, man. You just tell us when. We'll go after him. He's got the amen choir on his side. The second question he asks, are they going to restore the city for themselves? Now, there's a difficult in translation here. The Hebrew text is actually... A little bit ambiguous as to what he's talking about. The New American Standard 2020 edition inserted in italics. And if you see italics in a translation, by the way, this is a time of learning. If you see italics in a translation, that is the translators letting you know they're supplying an English word that's not in the original language. They're trying to help fill out the text. Well, in their process of help filling out the text, I feel like they did not do a good enough job. I do not believe it's specifically talking about the temple. I understand why they did that. But some translations you might see it says it. Are they going to restore it and just left it ambiguous? Some would say are they just building for themselves, which is also leaving it ambiguous, but it's also clean. Now, what I believe that Sanballat is referring to is not just the temple, although it would include it, not just the walls, although it would include it, not just the place of industry, although it would include it. I think he's referring to the city as a whole. Because if the Jews are to rebuild this city, they're going to bring about the temple worship. They're going to bring industry and trade back in and defense. They're building towers. They're building armories. The whole city is a threat against Sam Ballot in the north. So I believe the concept that he's making here, are they going to do this 
for themselves. Are they going to restore this? And remember, he's saying it in mockery for themselves. The third question he asks, and this is why I believe the translators went with temple because of the next phrase, can they offer sacrificing? Now, the idea here is that they would sacrifice to their God enough. If they just did enough sacrificing, do they really believe that they're going to get their God's attention and he's actually going to take their blessings and just pour it on them because, hey, they killed enough animals for them. Remember, they're mocking. They don't believe in the sacrificial system the way the Jews do. Now, now keep this in mind how literal this has become. This has been their tactic all along. Turn to the book of Ezra. Go to your left, the book of Ezra. Years before this, in chapter number 6, you had a similar circumstance take place. Let me go back in history a little bit, a few years before this. When they were going to rebuild the temple, that was their priority. They also ran into obstacles then, and they were also getting distracted. They had started to build their own homes instead of the temple. God sent Haggai and Zechariah, two Old Testament books in your Bible, to go and challenge them as to why God wasn't blessing them. And it's because they had misplaced their priorities. They had put the sacrificing and the house of God as a secondary plan and their own homes as primary. It's not that God didn't want them to build their own homes. They had it reversed. And so Haggai challenged them. Zechariah challenged them. Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest moved to the people and said, look, we got to get this house built. And they built God's house for him. And once they had completed it, notice how Ezra defines the elements of what took place in chapter 6 and verse 15. Now this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, history. Stop right here. It's easy to read through this and lose our spot. Darius was in line before Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes killed Darius to take the throne. It was his own brother. All right, he killed him to become king. Artaxerxes is the one that let Nehemiah go back. So keep that in mind. This is right before all this. And notice what happened. The sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered this dedication of the temple of God with a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats corresponding with the number of the tribes of Israel. So here's, that's a lot of killing. That's a lot of animals. Now go to chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Let me remind you of what Mark taught us last week in chapter 3, verse number 1. So keep in mind, Sanballat knows that these people are all about sacrificing to their God. And if they just sacrifice enough, is God going to bless them and help them build a wall? Notice what they did in chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers to the priest that built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Now, remember, you cannot set apart. Consecrated means to set something apart, to make it holy. That is impossible to do in the Levitical law apart from sacrifices. So here's Sanballat watching them sacrifice their livestock and thinking, what a waste of resources. Now back in Ezra 6, you don't have to turn back there, 
They were killing the male goats for sin offerings of all 12 tribes. Why is that significant? Folks, think about this. When you need a stud that's going to bring bloodlines into your herds, you do not kill the stud. Just like when you want a pure blood animal or a dog, the male that has the pure bloodline, you protect that in bloodline at all cost. You certainly don't kill it. But remember in the Levitical law, God did not require of them lame animals or ask of them for secondary. He wanted spotless and he wanted the best. They were killing the best of their livestock in their dedication to God. And here's Sanballat on the outside saying, Man, they're already limited on surprise, and they're killing animals, hoping that they're going to achieve their God's blessing to build this wall. It's a waste of resources. That's how they're looking at it when he's saying, can they offer sacrifices? They do enough sacrifices, God's going to bless them? They're killing their resources. They're already limited, but yet here they are. He thinks it's foolish. He says, can they finish it in one day? Literally, the idea of it is this. Are they going to finish it by the end of today? That's the literal idea of the phrasing here. Now, remember, they had worked so hard. They were diligent to get this task done. They're working their hearts out. And so he's mocking them, saying, man, they're working so fast. But they think they're going to finish this in a day or something. Let me remind you of Mark's sermon again in chapter 3. Look down at verse 20. Notice the zeal in this work to be done. Chapter 3, verse 20. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Elishab, the high priest. He zealously worked. These guys were working their hearts out For the work of the Lord. And he's saying, man, do they act like they're going to work hard enough and finish this task by the end of the day? They're working so fast, so hard, so diligent, they think they're going to get this thing done. And by the way, they weren't far from it, but they were only halfway there. Look down at verse 6. Notice how much progress they had made up to this point. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together. That's progress to half its height. So catch this. They were working hard and they were able to connect walls and put the gates in place and the doors and the bars and the bolts. But it's still only half high. It feels like they're not accomplishing as much when you look at the progress. And he's almost mocking the idea of they think they're going to finish the rest of the wall in a day. He's making fun of their work. The last question he says is, can they revive the stones from the heap of rubble? Remember at this time, stones were made of limestone, which if you take limestone and you place it in fire, it gets weaker and weaker and soft. They had no supplies to rebuild from ground up. They had to take broken, shattered stones that were ruined by the fires and use them to rebuild a wall. And he's basically saying, do you really believe That you guys can just take soft stones and put, notice the word he used, revive. Put strength back into them. Once you ruin limestone, you don't go back and fix it and make it better. But, yet he's mocking that fact. He says, you you think you can just put strength back into softened stones? Good luck. Now remember, he's venting all of these things, all of them, in contrast to the Jews. And he's making fun of them so that he would cripple their ability to accomplish the task. In fact, if you look down 
in our passage in verse 5, the last words, it worked for a while. Notice the words here. For they have demoralized the builders. What did? They pick up swords and charge after them and kill their leaders? No. All he did was these five things right here. These five words of statements were enough to demoralize the workers. So what was he really attacking? This is where I want to spend time in our application. He had five attacks in his five statements. Notice the first one. What are these feeble Jews doing? Here's the application. We're going to pause on each one of these and try to draw this to your own life. Think about this. He is attacking, by that phrase, their ability, their qualification, their credentials. You guys are not qualified to do the work in front of you. Question, is he partially telling the truth when he says that? Here's the next question that he's not looking at. Is that what God told them to do? Did God command them to do this? Yeah. Okay, so we have a conflict here. God said, you're not qualified, do it. The enemy looks at that as foolish and reminds them that they're not qualified. But remember, if you're self-conscious or insecure about something, and you're doing a work that you know you're really not the best at anyway, and you know you're not the top person in line that should be picked to do it, but yet God said, you're the one I want to do it, you're already self-conscious of your qualification. It's already difficult enough to fight yourself. But when your adversary comes along and says, hey, just so you know, if you didn't already, you're not qualified. You don't have the ability to do this. This is where the internal conflict happens in the life of believers. We have an enemy who hates us. We have an adversary, and it's not Sandballot. He may use people like Sandballot, but we have an enemy and an adversary who will use words to fight in your brain. And the first thing Satan always attacks is our abilities. Now think about that. When it comes to the work of the Lord and ministry, I want to say I don't care what your degree is, I don't care what institute you got your diploma from, or the lack thereof. None of us in this room or watching that are a part of our work are qualified to do the work of the Lord. None of us. None of us. The minute we think we are is the minute we will fall and fail. It's one thing to look at our life and say, hey, I am disqualified, but, or I'm not credentially capable of carrying out this task but God called me to it that's the difference between Sanballat and us Sanballat's not looking at it in a redemptive lens that God has his will and his purpose and his plans because God never uses qualified people to do his work because all of us are disqualified by our life of sin and our inabilities as humans to do supernatural tasks but God is merciful and gracious and enables his people to do a work that only he can do. And he uses us in our weaknesses to accomplish that. That's Paul's statement in the New Testament, folks, that when I'm in my weakness, 
When I'm in that state of weakness, then he is strong in me. So I would rather boast and glory in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We are doing a work as church planting that none of us are capable of doing or qualified to do. But our God who called us to it is. And the war will begin in all of you, if not already, where the enemy has attacked our mind and said, you can't. That's where you look at the enemy and say, you're right, I can't, but the God I serve can, and this is what he's told me to do. But if the enemy can get you to think about it long enough, you might start believing the lie yourself. Second thing, he said, are they going to restore the city for themselves in a day? Are they doing this for themselves? Okay, so what's he doing here? He's attacking their motive. Their motive. They're doing this for selfish reasons. They're building their own empire. They're building industrial cities and industrial works so that they can do commerce and trade. Think about the fish gate. Why why do you need a fish gate? For trade, food, supply, distribution. They weren't just building the temple, although they were. They were building houses for themselves. Read Haggai, and later in this passage, in chapter 3, you saw they were building houses for themselves. Now let me ask you. Is there a part of doing the work of the Lord that does benefit the individuals? Is it wrong to do the work of the Lord and God return a blessing and allow you to benefit from it? Is it wrong for that? No. But what he's doing is he's attacking their motives. The first and most primary purpose of them returning to the land was to rebuild first and foremost what building? I already gave the answer away earlier class. What is the first and foremost primary building God sent them back to build? The temple. It is now completed. Now, they struggled with that, Haggai tells us. They went on to their own, oh, I'm going to do this, and we're going to leave God's house in rubble, but we'll build our own. God worked that out. They learned a hard lesson. But now the temple's done. We've already seen that. God was never against them going back and building successful industry. God was never against them going back and building homes for themselves. But what the enemy's doing is he's bringing out an attack on their motive. And why we serve the Lord does matter. But even in serving the Lord, all of us, if we're honest, have some selfish reason for it. The question is, is it so selfish that our reason of selfishness is the primary, or is it a secondary? If you're serving the Lord to be seen, you're going to be disappointed. If you're serving the Lord to gain something out of it for your own personal benefit, not first and foremost to glorify God, And to enjoy that relationship with him, you will be robbed of anything you're pursuing and you'll never experience what you're looking for. It won't happen. Their motive is important. But there's nothing wrong with benefiting from doing God's work. As long as the focus is first and foremost, I'm here to serve the Lord and glorify him. And anything God benefits your family with as a result of that, he says to enjoy it. There is blessing and benefit, and it is okay to enjoy personal gain in serving the Lord when the order is right. But what if the enemy can come along and say, your order's screwed up, you're doing this for yourself. You're not doing this for God. You're doing this for you. And since you do know that there are selfish reasons in your head, you're kind of like, maybe I am doing this for myself. And he makes you question your motive. Well, that's what he got them to do. His third question. Can they offer sacrifices? 
So he attacks their ability, he attacks their motive, and now he's attacking their worship. He's attacking their worship. You're doing it wrong. You're not worshiping right. Remember, they understood a concept of worship. They served pagan gods. In fact, they would add God's name in and just mix them with a bunch of other gods. That's how they worshiped in the north, up in Samaria. You guys think that you're earning favor with your God by just doing good deeds, by killing your best animals and killing your best resources. Somehow you believe you're going to earn favor with God if you just do enough good. Now, let's, let's talk about that. God's never interested in the sacrifice primary. In fact, David recognized this in the psalm. He said, look, if the Lord wanted all of these animals to be sacrificed, I'd just give it to him. But that's not what he's really looking for. He's looking for a broken and a contrite heart. That's what God's looking for. Sacrifices are a product of the heart. To just go through the ritual without the heart being right, God's not interested in the animal. The heart behind the sacrifice was important. And numerous times in Israel's history, they just gave sacrifices for customary, traditional purposes, and their hearts were far from God. But if you can be challenged by your enemy to think, oh, I need to take a step back here. Maybe I am serving the Lord wrong. Maybe I have my motives screwed up. Maybe I am doing it for the wrong purposes. Maybe I'm not serving God the right way. Oh, and then you try to work it out and say, okay, if I'm not doing it the right way, what do I need to fix? And then you go into self-destruction after that. The other one is he says, can they finish it in one day? He attacked their work ethic. You guys are working out of your mind and you're gaining little progress. And let me tell you, I, let's just go ahead and pause right here. Seattle's a couple years ahead of us. They ran into a lot of obstacles with COVID. Uh, there's all kinds of issues that come with church planting. There are going to be long periods of time where you feel like you're beating your head up against a wall and making no progress or little progress at all. And the first thing we're going to be tempted to do is start changing everything. Now, there's a time to adjust and change, but sometimes the work ethic isn't the issue. If we're honestly doing the work of the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul, with all of our mind, we love God and we serve Him with that heart, and whatever our hand finds to do, we do it with all of our might. We dedicate our work to the Lord as they did in chapter 3, verse 1. Don't question the work ethic when results are not what you want them to be. The results are not where they want it to be. Yes, they would want the wall to be done in a single day, but it's just not possible sometimes. We want to be here. We want to, I want to have a church this size, and we're already in this place, under this location, under this jurisdiction. Yeah, that would be great, but that might not be where God wants you just yet. There's still much to learn, but they'll attack you on where you're not. The enemy will attack you on where you're not yet because you can always be better. You can always be further along, and he reminds you that there's better out there. And sometimes thinking that there's better out there will make you change your progress and make you change the path you're on and go into a different one, and it's typically not the right one because you're doing it for the wrong reason. Can they revive the stones from the heap of the rubble? He's attacking their resources. You guys do not even have the materials that it takes to do this. Listen, I have not met a church planter yet. I have not met a church yet that says, we have everything we would ever want to get things done the way we want them and how we want them, when we want them, and to whom we want it to be done for. 
Even successful churches will tell you they need more givers. <laughs> we need more resources. I have yet to meet a new work of the gospel and church planning that says, don't send your money to us, we're good. We've got everything we need. The temptation to always want more and have more will always be there. And when the enemy reminds you, well, you don't have what that church has, you don't have what that church has, that church plant started with that many people with this amount of money, you aren't starting with this amount of people. When, you get, when the enemy gets in your head, debilitates you. Okay? So what did the children of Israel do? How did they respond to this? I love the response. First, you see Tobiah in chapter 3. He's kind of a... Tobiah is one of those guys you just want to punch in the face. I mean, let's just, he just is. Tobiah is one of those guys that you just want to punch in the face. He gets up there and says, Ha, even the, he's like, even if they build this wall, foxes could jump over it. And if the foxes landed on it, it'd crumble anyway because it's so weak. Foxes could hop it. Remember, it's only half high. Now, we know from the book of Lamentations, in chapter number 5, that you find that foxes had taken over this area in the rubble. We don't have time to turn there, but we know that that is a current problem in this time period. Foxes had completely taken over. They were roaming around, and so he used a common animal in the day, stating, hey, even if a fox showed up to the wall, it could get in, and if it landed on the wall, the walls are so weak, a little light-weighted fox could knock it over. Now remember, he's being a smart aleck, so at this point, that's supposed to be mock, you know, mic dropped. Oh, you know, you get him, Tobiah. It's like, Tobiah, shut up. Like, I mean, you just want to punch him in the face. He's one of those guys, you just want to punch in the face. He's just, he's just building off of somebody else's platform. That's all he's doing at this point. And so he adds an element of ha-ha mockery to it. So what do the children of Israel do? What did Nehemiah do? And hopefully before the battery dies here, I can get these in. They submitted their emotions to God in prayer. The worst thing that we can do is go after emotional attacks with more emotional attacks. This is the warfare that we are in. God does not expect us to remain silent when our enemy attacks, but where we direct those words is what he's looking for. They did not retaliate. They had already answered him in chapter 2. When Tyler preached at the end of chapter 2, they already said, our God will make us successful. He'd already answered them. He's done talking to Sanballat and Tobiah. There's no reasoning with these people. There's a certain point where you give people an answer, and if they still don't like it, you don't answer them anymore. And that's what they do here. Rather, they submit their emotions. You don't think Nehemiah was emotional? We're going to read through his words in a minute. He was hot. He vented to God. But let me tell you, that's the best place to vent. Because you know what? He's the only one that can do anything about it anyway. We need to learn as a church to submit our emotions to God in prayer. God can take it. He can handle your venting. Read the psalmist. People think, oh, you can't say that to God. Listen, I promise you that you will not hurt God's feelings. And I know there's people that disagree with me on this. I think that the best place to vent is to God. He'll fix you. The dumb things you say, he'll show you how dumb they are. He's, he'll do it, I'm telling you. I remember driving down Interstate 26 one day, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my filter off, and God, I'm just going to go off. I'm pretty sure I almost died in a car wreck by the end of it. 
And I'm pretty sure I got saved three or four times by the time it was in park. So I think God took care of me just fine and showed me how dumb I was. God is capable of fixing our terrible prayers, but he wants us to talk to us. He doesn't want you to first and foremost go to your amen choir like Sandballot did. He doesn't want you to go to your echo chamber that's going to tell you everything you want to hear. No, he wants you to come to him because he's the source and the solution of your problems and, and answers. That's, he's the one that we go to. Submit your emotions to God in prayer. That's what we see here in verse number four. Nehemiah requests five things. And I don't know if I can get a charger up here to preserve these, but we'll go through them, okay? Look down at verse number four. Hear our God, O our God, how we are an object of contempt. Notice his prayer. He's inviting God to listen to the accusations of the enemy. I love that part. Now, let me ask you. This might mess everything up, but we're going to try to go with it anyway. Let me ask you a question. Did God already hear what Sanballat and his little gang had to say? Or is this new information to God? God already knew, right? So why would he say to God, hear the prayer as if you don't know it? This is where I want us to focus on an attribute of God that I think if we, if we just see him as a personal, relational God who wants us to talk to us, who wants us to talk to him and he wants to talk to us. As much as your friend does when you had a bad day at work and you're driving home and you're venting to your best friend about the day. God wants to be that friend first. He wants you to tell him what he already knows. He's a personal God. Hear, oh our God, how we are an object of contempt. Do you hear what these guys are saying? God, did you, did you hear what Sanballat said? Did you hear that guy I just want to punch in his face, Tobiah, talking about the foxes? Did you hear that jerk? Did you hear him? Yeah, yeah, of course God did. But God wants us to come to him with that. Not that he's oblivious to it, but he wants us to be personal with him. Who is the first person you go to when you're venting about a problem? It really dictates where you place your dependence. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to your spouse. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a friend. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a mentor or a leader. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, when does God enter into the equation of your vent session? And let me ask you, that question is pointed at me before anybody else in this room. I failed this too. Second, his second request is return their taunting on their own head. Well, that sounds a little vindictive. I thought we're supposed to bless those that curse us, and this sounds like a contradiction in Scripture here. Now, again, notice what he's doing. He's not answering them or defending himself. He's going to God. He's not saying, God, give me a sword, and I'll go out there and show him who's boss. God, empower our army. We'll take him down. That's not what he asked. He asked God to take vengeance on them. You want to know why? Because when God takes vengeance, it's just. When we take vengeance, it's typically not just. It, God is a vengeful God. He told us not to take vengeance for ourselves. He said he will repay because God does take vengeance. But God's vengeance will always be right. 
He's not asking for vengeance for himself. He's asking God to do the work of vengeance. This is what would be considered an imprecatory prayer. I mean, this is similar to the psalmist. And some commentators will go so far as to say that this prayer was wrong. I don't, and I'll tell you why. Number one, I don't think it's ever wrong to go and vent to God, even if it sounds bad. Second, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think he's praying with a level of spiritual control. He's not praying for personal vengeance. He's praying that God would take vengeance on those who made a ridicule of his people for his own name. All right? Return their taunting on their own heads. Turn them into plunder, into a land of captivity. Basically, this is what he's saying. The way we have been over the last hundred years, do it to them. We became plunder in a land of captivity. Take everything that they love and possess and take it from them and leave them in a place of captivity, in a land that's desolate. Take all of their resources. Now think about that. It sounds terrible. Again, it sounds terrible. But if they have nothing and they're also a desolate people, then they can't attack them. That's his prayer. Remove anything that they have that could turn us into a land of captivity. Rather, make them that land. They can't attack us if they have nothing. That's the prayer. Then, this one gets really interesting. Do not forgive their guilt. Man, this guy's... He's, you see the emotion in the prayer here? He's not praying a boring prayer. This is pretty intense. Do not forgive their guilt. The idea here is to demonstrate that they do have a level of conscious guilt for the way they're acting and that they'll eventually realize they have it and when they realize they have it he's saying god don't even let them forget it and don't forgive it do not let their sin be wiped out before you okay modern vernacular send them straight to hell i mean that's what he's saying don't forgive their sin And don't wipe it out before you. Let them die in their sins and stay there. Let them go straight to hell. That's what he's pretty much saying in this prayer. It's like, man, this is brutal. Let's take it apart really quickly. Application of this. And I just mentioned some of this, so we'll stay quickly through these. He prayed that God would enter into the problem. He made it personal. He made it very just about him and God at this point. And he's asking God to enter into what he knows to already be true. Hear what they said and do something about it. That is never a bad way to pray. Because he's recognizing God is the only one who can. When he said, return their taunting on their own head, he's praying that God would take vengeance on them. Again, not him, God would. When we pray for people, we should pray that we, we do what Jesus said, bless them that curse you. Just because you bless them that they curse you doesn't mean God will. But remember, he's just. He knows how to do that. We don't. That's why he tells us to default to blessing our enemies and to praying for them. Because we don't know what justice is. We're wrong about justice. Just because we pray to bless them doesn't mean God will. That's God's business. That's why we turn things over to God and let him do it. Because he's better at it than we are. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about this nation in a minute, and this will help clear some of this up if that still makes you worried and bothersome. He says, turn their plunder in a land of captivity. Pray that God would judge their sin justly. Do right. We did sins like this. It got us into captivity. Do it to them as well. 
He says, do not forgive their guilt. This is praying that God would not let them get away with searing their consciences. Don't let their conscience stop alarming them. Make them feel guilty for what they're doing. Do not let their sin be wiped out. He's praying that God would accomplish his proclamation against these people as he did in the days of Moses. So here's something else about this prayer you need to know. He knows something about a proclamation of God that we cannot relate with in the New Testament church. Turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Very quickly. You're doing great at listening. Nobody fell asleep yet. We're still in it. Great. Quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 23 in verse 3. This was said in the days of Moses. Now, know that Nehemiah is familiar with this. He's praying something specific to a proclamation of God that you and I don't have in modern day times with our personal endeavors and problems and enemies. We don't know about our enemies what he knew about his. Here it is. No Ammonite or Moabite. Remember, Tobiah is an Ammonite and Sanballat is a Moabite. Remember that. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the assembly of God. God had already cut off atonement for these people. He's not praying something that God didn't already proclaim. God had already said there's no forgiveness for these people. He was going to exercise his wrath for his own glory and purpose on these people. Now, these are exercising aspects of God that we don't like. In fact, I'm about to have a discussion in a few days with a pastor in Tennessee who just made statements about how God is inconsistent in his own character because there's things about God like this. We don't like this part about God. But remember, if God is just, He is justly punishing sin. Sanballat and Tobiah are not innocent here. So if God were to turn around and judge them, he rightfully would be doing so. And destroying them, he'd be rightly doing so. He had already made a proclamation that these people would never be in the assembly of God and experiencing God's blessing and forgiveness. So for Nehemiah to pray this, he's not praying anything God had not already proclaimed. Keep reading. Why did God make such a harsh proclamation? Verse 4, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was unwilling to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days catch it catch this he's saying don't forgive their guilt he's saying turn their plunder into captivity god had already proclaimed that the jews should never seek the peace of this country and that he would not give them a place in the assembly and that he would kick them out of any opportunity of atonement Altogether, not just in the days of Moses, but all the way to the 10th generation and forever. So when Nehemiah is praying this, this is what he's saying. Lord, 
It's time to exercise your proclamation in Deuteronomy chapter 23. You don't think they believe this? Turn to Nehemiah. Switch back over gears to Nehemiah 13. You don't think they understood this? They did remember these words of Moses. Nehemiah 13 verse 1. On that day the book of Moses was read out loud as the people listened, and there was found written in it no Ammonite, no Moabite was ever to enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water and they hired Balaam against them to curse you. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Hmm, I thought we just read that. We did. So Nehemiah was very, very much aware of this proclamation and they reference it later in the book. So when you're praying a prayer like this, Cut Nehemiah some slack. He had insight to proclamations of God that we don't with our enemies today. So was he praying emotionally? Yeah. Was he venting to God? Most certainly. Was he wrong? Not really, because he's kind of praying in line with God already proclaimed about these people anyway. And this is what he's saying. Instead of like the whole Star Wars execute order 66, he's saying execute order Deuteronomy 23. Take it out. Go ahead. Finish the job. Do what you said you're going to do to these people. Instead of defending themselves and answering the enemy with insults, they buckled down and used it as motivation to work harder. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, the entire wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind or heart to work. They did not defend themselves. They did not answer the enemy with insults. Rather, they used all of the criticism to motivate them to work even harder. And then the end result is verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, they br- and that its breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. So they conspired together to come fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion. So they put up a fake attack. And notice this. You have Sanballat, so you have the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. The Ashdodites are the Philistines. These countries didn't like each other, but they had a common enemy. All of a sudden, they have to be buddies to get along. The enemies of God started to get angry and frustrated, only to end this section in more anger and more frustration. You think it worked? The taunting didn't work. They just made the Jews work harder. Notice the two responses in verbal warfare. The enemies of God started angry and frustrated. And now we see, now they're building more alliances, more sympathy, and more anger, more frustration, and trying to go after him now physically. But notice the people of God. They worked harder, they prayed deeper, and they gained discernment in the process. Verbal warfare is either going to make you better and closer to God and self-evaluate and where you are spiritually, or it's going to make you go crazy and you're going to attack people and just destroy everything. We need to learn from the Jews here. They stopped answering the enemy, they took it to God, and it motivated them to work harder, pray deeper, and to gain discernment of what to do and what not to do moving forward. Is this how we deal with our problems? I suggest that we take this text as an example. I know that was a longer sermon, but I really appreciate you listening in on it because this is an important text that I think we need to spend a lot of time meditating on even after we leave tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah. For Lord, I needed this this week. I needed this passage. 
Lord, teach our church to deal with verbal insults. Teach us to deal with the warfare of the enemy that comes into our mind and taunts us and tries to turn things into just evil. God, help us to take things to prayer, to dig our feet deeper in prayer, to work harder, and to learn discernment in the midst of chaos. Lord, we can't do this without you. We need your spirit. We need your grace. We ask that you help our work as we do this, that you would lift our hands and our hearts to be diligent and that we would have a heart and a mind of unity to work. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know how long that was, but I apologize if it was long. But um, one of the things I want to work on since we don't have small groups right now is that we'd find a way and maybe...